And then I started having thousands and thousands of watches donated to veterans in hospitals and nursing homes across Canada. And over the years, I would say probably through watches and funds that I have donated, I would say probably in a monetary value is about a half a million dollars. So I really feel as if though our family, even though I'm not Polish myself, um, has tremendous ties to the people in Poland. Scotland. Yes. And Polish is the second language in Scotland, isn't yes, it? It is, it is. It's more, uh, many more pe- uh, people speak it than speak Gaelic. Each wave of Polish immigration into Scotland makes a huge impact. I wasn't expecting the way the festival will grow and will develop. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 58th episode of Polcast. If you want to join us in promoting Polish culture, history and great work of interesting Poles around the world, because Poland and Poles need good publicity now more than ever. And if you want to hear your name at the beginning of our next episode please visit our patrons page at mypolcast.com slash support. You can find all the information about our crowdfunding campaign on our website, mypolcast.com. This episode is brought to you by our supporters, and here are the new ones that have come on board. Beata Gołębiowska. Beata Kurpiewski. Eliza Mahoney. Donna Urbicus. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. When I heard of this story, I was really fascinated. Beautiful watches which have benefited hundreds of veterans and people serving their communities and at the same time provided significant support for many charities. And then Robin Devine, the woman who came up with this incredible win-win project, visited me with her Polish-born husband, Chuck Conkel, to show me the watches and to tell me about her most recent project involving new exquisite watches to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Polish independence. Robin makes no profit on the watches, passing it all to charities. I interviewed Robin and made her talk not only about the present Polish independence watch campaign, but also about her truly extraordinary life. So what's the story? Well, the story is that uh, for the past 22 years, I have been making watch campaigns primarily for the Canadian military for free. And I did this for the regiments because many years ago, um, they did not have the funds to be able to finance uh, many things when it came to keeping their culture, the historical culture, 
alive within the regiments. And it's always been very important to me because I have a great admiration for the historical past of the regiment. So I said, oh my goodness, you know what? I'll make the watch campaigns for the regiments for free as a way of raising funds for them, but not just raising funds for them, that they have the beautiful watch with their crest that they can wear every day. And then I started having thousands and thousands of watches donated to veterans in hospitals and nursing homes across Canada. Because when you would see the face of a veteran and they would receive a watch when they served in the Second World War and the First World War, because at the time when I created the Victory Europe watch, um, every single veteran at Sunnybrook Hospital, there were 550 of them in Toronto, received watches, but there were still five World War I veterans who were still with us. And I remember there was one veteran, uh, he was in a nursing home in Oshawa, Ontario, his name was Dwight Wilson, and he had been presented with a watch, but not just Dwight, every other single veteran who was in the facility with him. And I remember also at some of the events that we've gone to with the watches, and veterans would be there in tears. You just cannot imagine what a wonderful, wonderful thing it is to know that you've created those watches. I think I've created 65 different watches for the military in Canada. So when did this whole thing start, this idea? 22 years ago. So then we come to 1997, and my husband was seconded by the FBI. He was with the Toronto police, and he was asked to go to Poland and train the federal Polish police. And uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely, because I do make watches, to make five watches with the beautiful Polish eagle to give as gifts. And it was one of the most exceptional experiences to be in Poland, because it was still a time when it was just transitioning. And my husband's family is from uh, Gdynia. Uh, they were Kashuban, Kashuba. Um, and uh, I remember we went to his town and everyone was there to greet us. And it was just such a wonderful experience. And then, you know, to know that my husband was able to make such an important contribution with the training of the Polish police. And another thing that was very important, at that time we had our minister, Bill Graham, and uh, Bill always said that uh, my husband was instrumental in Poland uh, through Canada being admitted to NATO because my husband lobbied for that and he worked on that tirelessly. So I really feel as if though our family, even though I'm not Polish myself, um, has tremendous ties to the people in Poland. So to make a long story short, I had one watch left with a beautiful, beautiful Polish eagle. And uh, here we are now. It's the 100th anniversary of the re independence of Poland. And, you know, it breaks my heart when I think about what happened, because we've actually been to Cecilia Hof um, in Potsdam, you know, where the accords, uh, you know, were written. And, you know, to think about a country who was an ally, and then they became occupied. It's unbelievable that this could happen. So when I was asked, if I would make this beautiful Polish eagle watch for the anniversary, it was like, oh, now I am so excited to do this. And I did that because my husband's father, he was a political prisoner. He uh, fought with the French underground, and um, he was in two concentration camps. And he escaped from one, 
and uh, thank heavens he wasn't shot for escaping, and then he was captured again, and he went into a second uh, concentration camp. But Edward Conkle, I will never forget this, because even though he could barely walk, he would go during uh, the time of remembrance in Canada, and he would sell poppies. And he was from Hamilton, Ontario, and he would wear his slippers because his feet had been so badly damaged wearing the clogs in the concentration camp. And he had his dog, which was a Dalmatian. They would stand on the street corners. And even though he was in his late 80s, he always sold the most poppies for the veterans. And Edward Conkle had steely blue eyes, and he was the sort of person that when you shook his hand, it meant something. And you knew that his word was his bond. So, that is the reason why, even though I'm not Polish, I wanted to make this magnificent, magnificent watch. And I can tell you, everyone who's seen it, they are amazed because what I've always tried to do with the watches I've made over the past 22 years for the veterans, I've only raised the price of the watches by $22, which is exceptional. And I, the royal family has seven of my different watches because I make the watches for free, for free for the regiments and military every time uh, Queen Elizabeth or Prince Philip or one of the other princes would come to Canada because in Canada our regiments are alive and well, whereas in the UK a lot of them have been amalgamated. The royal family are the patrons of the regiments here. So every time they would come to uh, Canada uh, for an official visit, they'd receive one of my watches if I had happened to make one for uh, the Newfoundland Regiment or the Lawrence Scots or the Toronto Scottish. So the watch is something that is so beautiful and so spectacular. What I've always tried to do without increasing the prices, I've always wanted to make the finest watch possible um, and sell it for the least amount possible. And from each watch that I make, it's always for a special cause. And over the years, I would say probably through watches and funds that I have donated, I would say probably in a monetary value is about a half a million dollars uh, for all of the different um, organizations. So I really am so grateful to be able to talk to everyone today because if you want to wear a piece of Poland every day. Because I remember when the veterans, the elderly veterans received their watches, they said, we can't wear our medals every day, but we can wear this beautiful watch. And it's the same thing. I know you all have Poland in your heart every day, but this is a way of wearing that beautiful Polish eagle every day and looking at it and knowing that after this year, they'll never be made again. The watch is so beautiful. It's it's um it's engraved on the back with a beautiful Polish eagle, and uh, a, a special um, wording about the homeland. You know, for the honor of the homeland, and the box is all embossed with a beautiful Polish eagle. They're selling for a hundred dollars uh, plus your tax and postage, but the watch is valued at a solid. $250 with a Seiko Japanese movement, 24 karat gold plating, a $40 calfskin leather strap. How did you get to make watches? 
Well, um, a bit of my background, uh, I used to own Checker Automobiles in Canada many years ago. When I was only 23, I owned the Canadian distributorship. Um, and uh, if you don't know what a Checker is, when you'd see the movies and you'd see those yellow taxi cabs, well, I answered an advertisement in the newspaper, and his name was John Zolnarowicz, and he was Polish. And uh, he was looking for a partner, and I didn't know anything about the automobile industry. And he had an old checker, and it had a bullet hole in the rocker panel. Uh, We don't know how the bullet hole got there, but uh, I uh, answered the advertisement and uh, said, you know, I would really like to do this, and never heard from him again. It was a year later. It was a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning. The phone rang. He said, would you still like to be my partner? I said, yes, I would. Well, uh, again, I was 23 years old. I didn't have uh, very much money. I was engaged to my husband at the time. And uh, he had been, uh, he's Dutch and Polish, uh, but he uh, had been in Hong Kong on the Hong Kong police force, and he had $5,000 to his name. So he loaned me, gave me, gave me the $5,000, which this fellow said would be um, a worthwhile contribution to show a sign of good faith. So I owned the, um, uh, the sales end along with him, and he owned the uh, service end of the business. Well, a year later, a gentleman came to purchase a car, and he was a writer. And he wrote an article about me for Air Canada in En Route magazine. And it became the most successful article in the history of En Route. They made me their worldwide testimonial, and what was started with $5,000 became a multi-million dollar corporation uh, overnight. And it was also very interesting because in Canada there's something called, and in the United States, around the world now, United Parcel Service. Well, United Parcel Service couldn't get their van license in Canada. So how they started in Canada was that they used to buy the long-stretch checker automobiles from me, and they would, I can still see them on our major highway, the 401, and they'd have these huge baskets at the end of the checker, and the checker with the baskets would be filled with parcels for UPS. Well, um... They then did get their uh, license, and I remember calling Canada Post saying, oh no, oh no, they can't get their license, because they were supposed to buy another hundred cars from me, but they got their license, and then I lost the hundred cars, and and that was that. But uh, checker in Canada became a reverse status symbol. Uh, It was really magnificent, and then they stopped making checker in 1982. And it was really horrible for me. So what was a hugely successful company one day, was worth nothing. Then what happened was people felt sorry for me because here's Robin Devine, the car business is gone, and I saw a very interesting TV segment segment about a man who was making 1952 MGTD reproduction automobiles. And I thought, wow, that really looks interesting, you know? Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I received a phone call the next day from a fellow by the name of Mel Stein, who's no longer with us, And he said, Robin, there's this company that's going bankrupt, and um, I think it would be great for you. He said, it's this fellow who makes 1952 MGTD reproduction automobiles. I said, are you kidding? I just saw this on the news yesterday. Well, because when I closed Checker 
I had paid all my creditors. I didn't know anyone, any money. I didn't have any problem at all going to the bank saying, I'd like to do this. I'd like to buy the company. I'd like to buy the molds and manufacture these automobiles. And I was the first person in North America to introduce cars to lotteries. It reached a point where the company became so successful, I sold the company. And uh, I, have, uh, I had a daughter and uh, stayed at home with her until she went uh, back to school. And um, that's how I fell into the watch business. Why watches? Well, this was another interesting story, um, what happened, because I had a very good friend who happened to be in the watch business. He kept saying to me constantly, would you like to be my partner? Would you like to be my partner? Would you like to? And I said, okay. And this was how the pre-sale started, where I said I do this for free, because um, we made the first postage stamp watches in the world. These were actually postage stamps from the 1950s with the Canadian Wildlife Series. It was one of the most successful campaigns in the history. The watches were only released to the uh, philatelic subscribers, and they had to wait three months to get their watch because they paid for them all in advance. And I think they sold 12,000 watches, and this was back in 1995, a long time ago, to sell that number of watches. So that's how I wound up in the, the watch business, and then my good friend decided no longer to be in the watch business. It's been 22 years. Well, I don't stand there at the factory making them, but I design everything myself. I tell them, you know, what to do, but I put all the straps on the watches. The boxes come from Montreal. I put all the watches in the boxes. I put them all in, you know, I mail everything. And I do, and the reason I can sell the watches also for these prices is because I have no employees. I mean, I literally do everything myself. And when I say that it's a pre-sale and I pay for everything in advance, my goodness, sometimes it can take me two years before I've recouped my original investment. But I don't mind because, and that's what got to this, it was because I had been so successful in the automobile industry that I was able to do this. So I do it not because I have to, but because I can. And that's why when I was asked to make the Polish watch and to pay for everything, you know, myself, how because I've pay, underwritten the cost of the campaign, I do it because... I can, and I wanted to, because of what rep it represented. And I said to everybody, I was at the Ronson's Vales Polish Festival on the weekend, and I said to everyone, I said, oh my goodness, if my husband and his family weren't Polish, believe me, this watch would not be here today. <laughs> so I'm now talking to Mr. Conkel, who's the reason why Robin is doing what she's doing, right? Yes. Because she's married to a Pole, so here we are. I'm the silent partner, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're the cause, right, of all this. I hope so. Well, you know, it's one thing to be uh, one thing to be Polish uh, and have the luxury of, of uh, the linguistic ability to speak Polish. I was never given that opportunity. I came to Canada as a refugee with my father and mother after the Second World War. How old were you then? I was one and a half years old. Right. So you were almost born in Canada. Almost born, but must tell you something. I, I, um, I I've always felt proud of my father's heritage. I've always been proud to be Polish, and the greatest honor I ever got, next to be uh, my marriage to my wife, was the fact that um, I got a Polish citizenship last year. I'm very proud of that citizenship, I must tell you. I'm a very proud Canadian, but, you know, there's something about being Polish. Um, it's not just the language. It's, it's, it's in the blood. There's a certain pride. I'm a police officer. I've been one for 42 years. I was in the Army in Canada and the police in Canada. 
police in Hong Kong. I've been in uniform since 1968. And let me tell you, I'm still fit. You're still working? Oh, gosh, yeah. In, in, a, in one of the finest police services in the world, the Toronto Police Service. The, the, the discipline of, of the Polish military is renowned. And has it's, it's, it's not just Narvik, it's not just Casino, it's not just uh, Market Garden Arnhem, or the Valet de Gap, uh, Maciek Mace. Uh, the, not Breda. It's 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 not just the Blue Army. It is it's the Hussars. It's the Lancers of Vienna. It's it's the Ulans. Do you go to Poland a lot? I've been a, a few times, as, as Robin has, has said. I was uh, very honored to be uh, to go to Poland back in the nineteen nineties, and I was uh, the personal executive officer to uh, Mark Papawa. I was at Leganovo. I trained the police in Leganovo. I was the recipient of the Order of St. Bridget. Uh, it was given to me uh, the day after the George Bush the first got it. And so um, it's a very honorable medal. It was done for my work, uh, working with the, the Polish police and military. Now you support, I understand, wholeheartedly what Robin is doing, right? Oh gosh, yeah. I, I think it's the best thing going. I think, you know, as Robin said, you wear a piece of Poland, but, you, you know, it's it's... I've got people who, who wear these watches much the same as you wear a military tie. It's a very discreet way of, of showing pride in your nation, pride in your heritage. I don't know if many people know this, but the Polish diaspora is the second largest in the world, next to Chinese. That's never going to change. And, and I think we have to be vocal, we have to articulate the importance of an independent and free Poland in a very volatile environment. We have to be proud of our heritage. Yeah, our national anthem, the Polish national anthem, Jeszczepolska Nezgenela, has a true meaning. And it lives in every pole. If there's a charity in Poland who would like to align themselves with this watch, then funds can be diverted to that charity in Poland. If there's someone in the United States who would like to align themselves with this beautiful Polish eagle watch and funds be diverted to their foundation or their charity, that would be wonderful. If so, everyone who's listening, if you'd like to get involved, if you'd like to participate, if you'd like to, you know, be able to generate these funds for your charity, oh my goodness, this is possible. And the thing that's so wonderful about it is it's not costing you anything. The only thing that anyone has to do is guarantee that they'll promote the watch. By the way, the company is called Time is Ticking in Toronto. And uh, my website is timeisticking.ca, and I can mail these watches all over the world. The watches are really beautiful, a fantastic gift for Christmas for someone special. To learn more about the campaign and about the watches and to see how beautiful they are, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. This is another segment resulting from our collaboration with, with a group of students from Poland, History Buffs, who created a very interesting website, greatpoles.pl. We featured them in our episode 49. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another segment of Great Poles on Polecast. My name is Barbara Kargel, and today I am joined by Maciej Bielecki to talk about the famous Henryk Sienkiewicz, a great journalist and novelist, fantastic social worker, and Nobel Prize laureate. His internationally famous historical novel, Quo Vadis, was translated into around 50 languages and published in 70 countries around the globe. 
Hi, Barbara. It's a pleasure to be here. Maciej, how did the time in which Sienkiewicz wrote affect his work? Well, the brink of the 19th century, which was the most intense period of Sienkiewicz's work, was a time of foreign occupation, tragic uprisings, and an overall depression in Polish history. One of Henryk Sienkiewicz's main goals when creating his work was instilling hope in the hearts of fellow citizens. This is why many of his literary pieces focus on times of great political and cultural struggle and the Polish fight for independence. Furthermore, because this was also the period when travel became more and more available, Sienkiewicz took inspiration for his books from the American and Western European cultures, as well as the African experience he gained while on his safari expedition in 1891. That's amazing. Um, if you didn't know, Henryk Sienkiewicz also wrote the Great Trilogy, which included three novels. The first one was about the Khmelnytsky Uprising, the second about the Swedish Deluge, and the third was about the Polish War with Turkey. All events happened in the 1600s. How did those books affect the public's mood in Poland? As a matter of fact, they were a major influence when it came to preserving the Polish culture, as well as history and pride. The trilogy itself was created not long after the January Uprising in 1863, a significant blow to the identity of Polish patriots. Works such as With Fire and Sword or The Dolge played a significant role in reinstating hope within the nation. What all of these books had in common was the uncertainty of success of the main protagonists. Multiple storylines kept the readers questioning whether in the end the Polish patriotic characters would succeed or not, just as Poles doubted the dream of regaining freedom after failures of the November and January uprisings. But the most crucial part of the trilogy's novels was that despite the sometimes heartbreaking losses that heroes had to endure, they were always able to overcome all difficulties and achieve victory. This idea of determination and faith was paramount in continuing the future struggles of Poles for their social rights and, in the end, independence. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Henryk Sienkiewicz's social work? Actually, um, throughout his life, Sienkiewicz combined his literary career with providing social aid to Polish citizens in his motherland as well as abroad. During his early adult life, he worked after hours as a journalist in various Warsaw newspapers. A few years later, when he immigrated to the United States, he committed his time to spreading the pro-Polish agenda in the Western world. In his lectures and essays, he openly criticized Poland's occupants, Russia, Austria, and Prussia. Additionally, Sienkiewicz gave financial support to the American Polonia in New York and California. In the 1880s, he returned to Poland. At that time, he focused on spreading patriotism and hope by creating the Great Trilogy and economically supporting artistic and cultural clubs, as well as several charitable organizations located in Warsaw. Finally, towards the end of his life, he made use of his already international reputation in order to advocate to Russia's elites for reforms and broader freedom of Polish culture within the Russian Empire. As a whole, what do you think made him different from the writers in his time? What made his work so appealing? In my opinion, Sienkiewicz managed to provide social views and moods which coincided with ones of Polish societies during the occupation. Consequently, his readers could identify themselves with characters presented in his novels. 
Equally as important, though, was the fact that, unlike many other authors of his time, he committed himself to telling stories of the past, ranging from ancient Rome through medieval Europe to 19th century Africa. His novels were a fresh and fascinating concept, which I believe make his pieces attractive for all readers. Furthermore, his works carried universal messages about love, patriotism, friendship and honor, which remain relevant to this day. He was truly one of the greatest Polish writers of all time. Thank you so much, Maciej, for this collaboration, and I hope to hear from you again someday. As for all of you, I hope that you will keep on listening to podcasts in the future, and don't forget to check out our website at greatpoles.pl. Bye! Do you remember the mysterious story of a train full of gold buried by the Nazis in Polish Silesia? In episode 30, we featured Wanda Kościa, a London-based Polish-born director, producer, and award-winning documentary filmmaker, and her BBC film, Hunting the Nazi Gold Train. Today, we're very happy to introduce Wanda Kościa as our podcast interviewer, who speaks to someone truly special. To an audience interested in things Polish, Neil Asherson needs no introduction. Renowned author and journalist with books and articles on a wide range of topics, including the Congo, the Spanish Civil War, archaeology, Scotland and more, Poland has always been a focus of his interests, ever since his first visit to Poland in the heady days following the October 1956 revolt, which had brought an end to Stalinism there. Since then, he has been an engaged chronicler of Poland's dramas, authoring numerous articles and books, including the Polish August about the birth of Solidarity, which he witnessed firsthand in the Gdańsk shipyard, and the book of the TV documentary series, The Struggles for Poland, for which he wrote the commentary. But last year, Neil published his first novel. The Death of the Fronzak is a Second World War drama with a Polish serviceman as the main character. The main action takes place in Scotland, set in Greenock, a port just east of Glasgow, where Neil spent his early boyhood. We spoke about the death of the Fronzac at his home in London. This is an unusual departure for you. I mean, doing a novel rather than factual, though there is fact in it. What, what inspired you to write a novel, Neil? I think I like telling stories. Um, many stories, some of them true, some of them half true, uh, have built up in my head over um, since my childhood in 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 Scotland, um, which are to do with often with Polish things, and these stories um, were really pressing on me as I grew older. They needed to be told, and they couldn't be told as journalism. They weren't that sort of story because they, they were fabulous. They were about people. They were unreliable. I mean, they may not even be true. You know. And so they needed to be put into a, a fiction. Because the Polishness is what's, what, what is really striking, is why is it so Polish? But you choose to be, make the character speak in the first person and be called Maurice Szczutski. So you speak in mm-hmm. the first person as a Pole, and that is pretty astounding. Well, it, it was an adventurous 
insolent, impudent thing to do, really, to try to speak as a Pole. But I thought maybe I could. I thought I invented a Pole who was slightly déraciné. You know, he'd got away from his roots and uh, become an independent thinker, um, a lonely young man. And I thought through him um, I could speak uh, without getting things too wrong. I could imagine what his views were, and I thought that mm, he would be exactly the sort of person to see these strange situations in wartime Scotland. So I thought he would be a good observer, a good narrator, better than trying to invent a Scot or invent somebody else. You know, I thought you know a pole coming from somewhere completely different, finding himself in this initially very strange country. His eyes would be very clear. So it also allowed you to look at Scotland with a fresh freshness, do you think? Yes, it, yes, a little bit. It was a way, that's right, it was a lens or light projected onto Scotland. How would, we, how would you summarise what this book is about? We don't want to give it away, but it is mm. a bit of a thriller. It's yes, yes, it is. It starts with a bang, this book. And this bang is something which really did happen, which is the explosion of a French destroyer in Greenock, in Scotland, um, offshore. The first months of the war, because she torpedoed herself through some extraordinary accident, and it turned into a disaster. The ship slowly sank and her crew, trapped below decks, were either burned to death or drowned. A dreadful incident which impressed itself on the whole population of this town. So the question is, why did this happen? How could a modern warship torpedo herself? You know, And then, of course, all kinds of typical explanations began to arise. You know, Some people said, uh, it's sabotage, he said. It must have been some French fascists on board this French ship. Uh, other people said it must have been a bomber which nobody saw passing. Other people said it's just French incompetence. They pulled the wrong switch and uh, they didn't uh, have a proper drill for launching torpedoes and so this happened. It's an accident, a complete accident. I think I know now because I went to the French naval archives eventually and looked at the the final commission of inquiry. So it's about a group of people who for very different reasons become involved with this question of how did this explosion happen? Was somebody guilty? If so, who was guilty? Why in this? And it's the story of how they relate to each other and where this search for the reasons for the explosion, um, where it leads them and how it affects them. There's a long, intricate uh, correlation between Poles and Scots. You refer to the, the back history of that as well, don't you? Yes, I do a bit. Yeah, yeah. But yes, of course, there's a long relationship. It goes back to end of the 15th and then the 16th and 17th centuries, really, with the Scottish colonies in the Vistula Basin, who are very highly organised. Enormous numbers of Scots with their families migrated there and lived there and eventually was absorbed into Poland. But they gradually, in spite of their original intentions, <laughs> converted to game Catholics, you know. The last straw for some of them came actually as late as 1916. Within 1916, 
the uh, Russian Empire said that uh, all foreigners living in the Russian Empire must have Russian passports. Curiously enough, at that point, the remaining Scots, completely polonized, most of them, said that's too much. No. <laughs> they refused. And they went, as it were, home to Scotland, a country they'd never, of course, been to. For, for generations. generations. <laughs> you dedicate the book, actually, to the new wave of Poles that have settled in Scotland. Yes. And Polish is the second language in Scotland, isn't yes, it? It is, it is. It's more... Uh, many more pe- uh, people speak it than speak Gaelic, and more than speak uh, Urdu, which is another large Asian population in the Glasgow area. Each wave of Polish immigration into Scotland makes a huge impact. I mean, obviously the the big one in 1940, when the Polish army arrived, the Air Force and the Navy, and settled in Scotland for these years, I mean, huge experience for a country which had never really encountered foreigners in a mass before. It regarded itself as a country for emigrants. People leave Scotland, people don't come there. They're amazed by their glamorous appearance and uniforms, and flowing cape, their boots, their strange hats, you know, beautiful square caps, and by their kind of air of, of excitement and interest. You know, they looked at everything that they passed with interest. They were fascinated by us, we were fascinated by them, I suppose. The second wave were, I suppose, all the Polish soldiers and airmen who stayed after 1945, or who came from Italy and decided to settle uh, from their second corpus, who they came, they settled in Scotland. Um, but then, the third wave, after 2004, with young Poles, and they, typically they came in little couples, you know, you've got a boy and his girlfriend, and they would come, and they would do sort of really dirty work, washing up, you know, in old cafes and restaurants, uh, clearing rubbish, whatever it was, and then they would put together a little bit of money, and then they would start a tiny sort of service business, a plumber, it might be, or very importantly in rural Scotland, looking after old people, shopping for them, cooking for them, and generally looking after old people. And this was absolutely invaluable. One of the curious phenomena was this, this wave of young Poles. They didn't just stay in the cities, Edinburgh or Glasgow. They found out so that really small communities in the Highlands with perhaps you know, three or four hundred people would suddenly acquire you know, a, a Polish couple or perhaps two Polish couples and they would be there, maybe they'd be working in the pub or they'd be doing all kinds of different things. You know, they'd be quite well known. And they were filling a gap because um, Scotland's very bad at sort of small enterprises. People just don't have the originality or energy to set up a tiny business like that little service business and so they filled they filled the gap and became on the whole very popular and, and they're staying do you think well i think no i mean this is a, a community which i mean it reached about over 70,000 70 to 80,000 but it's now declining for a number of reasons partly because conditions in Poland are better, partly because um, once some of these couples and the, have, have made a little money, 
they they run a little service business and maybe they've done plumbers or it's a hairdressers or whatever it might be. Now they've got enough money. They think, well, we'll go back and do it in Poland now. Go home. There's some of that. But also, I'm afraid, uh, a lot of people have begun to feel not unwelcome in Scotland with Scots, but unwelcome in Britain because of Brexit. Because there's so many Polish fates which are recognisable and both wartime and post-war. Mm. It's a really rich tapestry and I think probably it's a book that would be of interest to, to Poles all over the world. I was trying to describe the way in which you know, Polish life is so complicated because it's in one sense there's kind of sturdy certainty about I am Polish, you know, end of story. And, and this course, is what being Polish means. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Because Poland, in spite of being courageous and bold and all the rest of it, is fragile. There's terrible fragility in which suddenly, you know, you find yourself forced to do things which, you, which disgust you, but you can't see any way of avoiding them. Maybe, you know, there is no way to protect people you love than by becoming a rather disgusting person, which you you despise yourself for. Maybe you have to do that for a bit. So how does that fit in with sort of honourable, upright, uh, brave pole? You know, it's all part of it. It's part of this difficult fate of being in this difficult country, in this difficult geographical position. Unfortunate for location, yeah. yes. 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 Do you think this is going to come out in Polish? I really would like like to see that. I've been thinking about it, wondering in a nervous way whether a Polish reader would feel a bit contemptuous about this attempt by a foreigner to achieve some kind of empathy with what it has meant to be a Pole at a particular time. Do you think the Poles are over-obsessed by history? Because you, you, you show a lot of history in that book, as well as being a great thriller and, you know, a character novel. But do you think the Poles have a historical obsession? And do you think it's healthy? I think the Polish obsession with history is with... Uh, well, it is extremely understandable because trying to understand what it means to be Polish means you have to know a good deal of history and you have to also unpeel it from different people's interpretations because Polish history has been, of course, lied about. It has been uh, torn out of the book and thrown away so it doesn't exist. And it has been promoted in ways which are deeply exaggerated. My difficulty about Polish relationship to history is the strength of the what you might call the cyclical interpretation, the awful feeling that it keeps happening over and over again. You know, and it is all too like Mitskiewicz's messianic view, you know, of Poland as a resurrected saviour which has to be crucified and then go down into the grave and then be resurrected and sacrificed for the benefit of all nations. And um, although this is a theory, a self-understanding of history which is so strange for other nations, nevertheless... It is it's a providential view, and the trouble is that it is difficult to escape from. It seemed to me that after 1989, 
that Poland was escaping from this and was beginning to feel, you know, the future really is the future. It's a different, it's not the past happening again in a slightly different form, but this is new. We can make this Poland now. We can make our lives. We have that sort of new freedom, which perhaps perhaps it existed in 1918, after the regaining of independence time, but we lost it and returned into these terrible cycles of, you know, oppression, destruction, and then, you know, resistance, sacrifice, hope, and then the moments of brilliant freedom, and then slowly it goes sour, and you retire, and you know, once again the cycle turns, people begin to betray you, uh, the enemies gather around Poland once again, the cycle begins to turn. And this kind of view of an awful inevitability of Polish history repeating itself is bad news because it pervades, it creates a sense of hopelessness and also, worse still, of paranoia and of xenophobia, actually, of deep mistrust, a feeling that everybody is out to destroy Poland, that you will never have any real allies and that it will never be free of internal traitors and that this cycle goes on and on, turning because somewhere somebody something, some great force of providence actually wants it to be like that and we can't escape from this endless returning and returning the past repeating itself so that is a victimology which unfortunately I feel has returned and is being exploited at the moment in Poland and I regret that very much To learn more about Neil Acherson and to hear the parts of Vandas Kostya's interview with him, which we had to edit out here due to time constraints, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. the big opening of Ekran uh, 2014. I'm so excited. It's an amazing, exciting evening. Make sure you will come to say hi to us because we're here for another four days. We're here to talk to you, discuss, mingle, network, uh, laugh, cry. And this is what we do. We celebrate the Polish cinema and we want you to see the rest of the films. Hi, I'm Marta Pozniakowski. I'm the CEO and founder of Ekran Toronto Polish Film Festival. And I'm Jasia Kierzowski, social media producer and Q&A moderator of Ekran Toronto's Polish Film Festival. This year is our ninth edition of the festival. We started out small, and since we've had some of Europe's top filmmakers come to our festival. To name few, Agnieszka Holland, Marcin Wrona, Jerzy Skolimowski, Marian Dziędziel, Katarzyna Figura, Robert Wienskiewicz, Mitya Okorn, Jan Komasa, and Richard Bugajski. from Ekron Toronto Polish Film Festival. Uh, I wanted to say hello from the Toronto International Film Festival. Some of the Polish films that were featured at TIFF you will have a chance to see at Ekron, so I will see you there. Hi Ekron, I'm Isabella from the Polish Film Institute and this is TIFF 2015. Hi, I'm Agnieszka Holland, film director from Poland. Hi to Ekron Polish Film Festival in Toronto. 
I'm Marcin Brona, director of the Demon. Be scared of my film, and but don't worry about ghosts because there are only new minds. So I am Victoria Szymańska, and I made a film Seven Sheep, and I hope that you get to see it again in Toronto. Hello, Polish Film Festival in Toronto. I am Jerzy Kolimowski. Have fun. These are memories from some of the past nine Toronto Polish Film Festivals called Ekran. The 10th Ekran is starting very soon, on November the 5th. Myself, having been the organizer and host of nine Polish film festivals in Toronto in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, I'm really very happy to see that young, passionate people are continuing this work in their own unique way so effectively employing the best of today's technology and their special skills. So, to celebrate Ekran's jubilee, I'm truly happy to speak to Marta Pozniakowski, the festival founder and director. Just a little note, the acronym TIFF that Marta uses stands for Toronto International Film Festival. Marta, before we start talking about the festival, I want to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about your background because you have very strong connection to film. And, uh, tell us about how how your life has gotten so close to this form of art. I was a child actor and model uh, back in Warsaw since I was probably like four years old. Um, my uh, my auntie was running one of the first kids talent agencies in Warsaw, uh, so that was fun. And then, sort of naturally, I progressed into the idea of me making films or being an actress. Um, I um, submitted my papers for to a film school in Luch, where I was accepted and I graduated uh, from uh, film production um, department. So when I came to Canada, um, I realized that we may, uh, we may need a film festival here which I didn't know at that time that you guys were running film festival for many years. Nine. Uh, <laughs> You're better. Nine, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I think when I started Ekran, there was like a break. I think mm, there was... Yeah, quite for significant. Some, when did you start? Yeah. Which year was that? 2009 was our first edition. So when you came here, you decided that you want to do the festival. What was your initial idea and how does this initial idea compare to what you have now achieved after nine editions of the festival? I wasn't expecting the way the festival will grow and will develop. Uh, for me, the <laughs> first step was just to just to have fun. Mm-hmm. I thought it's... Uh, it will bring lots of joy, uh, not only for myself, but other people. Uh, if we have the opportunity to watch Polish films, bring some uh, guests, um, cooperate, maybe do some projects uh, on a site. And uh, yeah, 10 years later, I like the way everything works so far. It's really impressive. I'm very happy what we have um, achieved. Uh, and even the plans for the future, suggestions from other people that are coming on a board and want to help us to um, uh, grow the festival further. It's uh, it's really amazing. What do you think is the key to this success? It's all about the people. Um, you know, being understanding, loving, accommodating, being a good friend, uh, always smiling, asking how people are doing. I think that's that's the key to not only the festival but to to everything 
we're doing in life. Have you had a lot of help? And I mean institutional help, both back in Poland and here in Canada. Yeah, so since the very beginning, from the uh, starting from the year one, um, we had a support from the Polish Film Institute and the Polish Filmmakers Association, as well as the Polish Consulate and the Toronto Art Council. It's also financial support, I understand, right? Absolutely, yeah. When you look at festival number one and festival number 10, which is coming in a few, well, very soon, <laughs> in a yes. few weeks, right? What is exactly the difference between the two? You know, I don't know, because the, the first years of the festival, it's for me, it's such a blur. Uh, I don't remember much. I, I remember I was doing everything on my own, and there was also Patrick Bognat. There are two of us um, running back and forth, trying to put everything together. Yeah, Patrick Bognat was uh, uh, my friend who, uh, like, we, we started, he helped me to raise the festival uh, from the idea to actually the event. I remember I was selling the tickets in the box office, then I was running on the stage, welcoming the people. We started the film, then I was uh, jumping in a car, driving to the airport because some films arrived at that time. Uh, DCPs weren't so much popular, so we were still screening films on the 35 millimeters oh, um, tape. Yeah. And I had to carry like eight, 12 boxes of those films back to the car, back to the cinema. After the screening, we had to, I, I run to the stage, thank everyone for coming and inviting people to join us the next day. And we're sitting in the screening room, testing the films till like, early morning uh so it was very chaotic now i have this um, comfort that i can focus on watching the films and working on the program and the rest of the uh, stuff which is like less pleasant probably like coordinating the films uh, negotiating the licenses um, inviting the guests um, there are people that are helping to do that from your point of view, but I'm also wondering from the point of view of the actual festival goers, the viewers, right. how would this number one compare to what we're expecting in number 10? I can bring in an example of a friend who also started a small film festival a couple of years ago at the Review Cinema, and he called me once and he was asking me questions, how do we do it, that he was observing us for many years, and that we're consistent, uh, we have a great programming, great guests. All the, our design and graphic designs and the website, uh, that it's easier to purchase the tickets. Um, it's more consistent, well, or better organized for sure. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the actual concept on how, you know, what you're presenting and your choice of films, is there, is there a difference between what you were doing at the beginning and what you're doing right now? At the beginning, I remember I was uh, strongly relying only on the suggestions from um, uh, the Polish Film Institute or Gdynia Film Festival. Now I'm trying to scout films that are screened at other film festivals, films that for sure people won't have a chance to see at the movie theaters, uh, that they just have a festival life, uh, if I may say that. And sometimes uh, films that are not uh, is easily uh, obtainable by uh, festivals uh, class B like ours, uh, considering we are just the Polish Film Festival, not International Film Festival, uh, I fight stronger to get those films uh, of the first hand, so they're freshly, fresh and new uh, screen attack run. What is the percentage of those when you look at the overall number of films that you screen? Mm, I would say 30%. Mm -hmm. That's quite yeah. impressive. Okay. Mm -hmm. How many are you screening this year? This year, uh, I think we have about 22 films. 
and they're not feature films. Okay, feature films. But you also yes. did. I don't know if you still do. You did um, documentaries and you did some short, um, short films, right? Yeah. So we have a block of short films. Uh, we have a block of uh, and uh, documentaries. Uh, if there is something that I think our audience will re really enjoy, I we definitely show those films. And for short films, I always reserve uh, some spots for uh, young filmmakers, debutants, uh, and um, every year there are like two or two or three uh, students or people that are that made their first film that come to Toronto, so they have an option to meet other young people that work in the industry, um, and um, they can cooperate, uh, engage, meet new, make new friends. You've also reached out, right? It's not just uh, this year, actually, for the first time. Mm -hmm. You're going to be showing movies both at Review f uh, Cinema, which is your cinema. Interestingly, that's where we had mm -hmm. ours, so it's like even closer to my heart. <laughs> but also in Mississauga, which is great, because that's where a large Polish community lives. But mm -hmm. I have to do things like you that you, for example, collaborate with the University of, of Toronto Student Organization, and then mm -hmm. the, you will be doing um, a free... Uh, screenings of some Polish films. So there seem to be those extra things that have um, uh, that have appeared, like some exhibits of Polish uh, film posters. Can you just talk about that a little bit, about these extra things that have been created as an addition to the festival? Well, for me, uh, organizing film festival, it's uh, basically a safe place where it's not only films that we're watching, but everything that is related to film that we can experience, uh, including film posters, art, uh, lectures, articles, um, and engaging uh, institutions or organizations like uh, University of Toronto or other organizations that we always try to match uh, as co-presenters uh, to some of our films, uh, like um, this year, Women in Film and Television or some LGBT organizations, to raise the awareness and uh, bring more attention to Polish films in the city. It's easier to reach out uh, to other circles of people or communities through um, those organizations. So it's like a natural way of uh, tapping into their resources. Can, can you give us more examples of such initiatives? Yes. So, for example, when we have a guest uh, coming from Poland, uh, like let's say a couple of years ago, we had this uh, young director, Jan Komasa, who produced the uh, film Warsaw 44. Uh, not only we presented his film at the cinema uh, with him uh, being our special guest and uh, after there was a Q&A session, so our, our audience had the opportunity to ask him a question, uh, speak to the director. But we also engaged uh, students from the University of Toronto. We organized a free lecture and a screening and a meeting with the director. So those kind of uh, things. Can you think of a biggest success of something that that you're the most proud of? I'm sure there's many, many little things, but uh, one, I'll give you one example that really make me so happy because I think that's why we are having film festivals all over the world. I would say a couple of years ago, maybe even more, with this young uh, director coming from Poland. Uh, his name uh, is Mitya Okorn. Uh, he was screening his uh, one of his first films. It was a romantic comedy, very popular. He met here a 
young uh, film director that uh, is Polish, but uh, living uh, he lives in Toronto. They became a good friends. Um, and I didn't even know. Years later, Mitya came back to Toronto to present his second film he produced and directed. And uh, he told me that he wrote this script uh, together with uh, Peter Pasek, who uh, lives in Toronto and wh whom he met here at our film festival. So I thought that's an incredible story. Uh, and that's I think that's a success of Ekran. Yeah, I'm going to ask you another question, obviously, which is what is the thing that you remember as the most traumatic situation? Uh, yes, of course, that was exactly five years ago. It was an opening night at the Tivbel Lightbox. We were screening Siberiada, Polish film, and uh, uh, halfway through the film basically stopped. <laughs> Tiff stuff uh, it was so amazing. They quickly brought the DCP that the director brought with him, somehow converted it quickly on a screen and uh, started playing the, the film exactly from the moment where it stopped. Uh, but it's just because they're amazing experience and the technology they're using there. But that was, I think, the longest five minutes of my life. It was so traumatic. Now, the, the best guest, the most memorable guest you had, festival guest. Uh, you know what, Robert Vinskiewicz, Polish actor, we call him Polish uh, Tom Cruise. Absolutely adorable. He, he has been here last year for the second time. Uh, he loves Toronto. He wanted to come this year, but he said, no, uh, I will get my, the audience will get bored with me. Oh, but, I don't think uh, we would. <laughs> I know, but it's so nice of him that anytime he goes back to Poland, he tells everyone that the festival in Toronto is the best, the best people. He always have fun here. Who are we expecting this year? I, I don't know that because... Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Yes. Just, just, you're going to keep us posted and we'll keep everybody posted. Exactly. exactly. Well, listen, this is a beautiful thing. And I think what is most amazing is that young people do this. And that's really for us, like this older generation that did our part. It's amazing that you do it. So I wish you... I don't know how many, 30, 40 more, and all the best. And we're looking forward to all the films. Thank you. Mongosha, thank you so much. And for more information about the Ekran Festival, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today we're talking about haluski, one of the favorite comfort foods of Poles on the east coast of the U.S., and a scrumptious, satisfying combination of buttery egg noodles, fresh cabbage, and spices. Traditionally, haluski is a meatless dish often served during Lent, but for the rest of the year, many home cooks like to kick in a little oomph by adding bacon or kielbasa. Haluski may or may not be an original Polish dish. Around Philadelphia or upstate New York or Buffalo, many Poles claim haluski as their own, but others say that haluski has Slovak or Hungarian origins. But that doesn't really matter, because everyone loves it. So here's an easy recipe for this simple and delicious dish which is perfect for supper on chilly fall afternoons 
In fact, we just made a big pan of halouski to test the proportions in this recipe. Oh my, it was just delish. To prepare halouski, you'll need sliced green cabbage, sliced onions, partially cooked egg noodles, butter, of course salt and pepper, chopped garlic, caraway seeds, yes, caraway seeds, and if you're not going meatless, you'll want some crumpled bacon and good quality cooked kielbasa. Start by heating some butter or oil in a large skillet over medium heat. Add the onions, half the salt, pepper, and garlic, and saute until the onions are translucent, stirring often. Be patient and don't turn up the heat because you don't want the butter to turn brown. Toss in the cabbage, keep cooking, and stir often until the onions turn golden and the cabbage is starting to change color and becomes limp about 10 to 12 minutes. Stir in the noodles and more salt, pepper, and garlic a bit at a time and keep tasting until your palate says to stop. I happen to like heavier flavor, so we're always wrestling over the salt shaker and the pepper grinder. Cook until the noodles are just underdone Keep taste and keep tasting. Add the caraway seed, keep tasting while the flavors marry. Let it cook together for 5 to 10 minutes on low to medium heat, allowing the flavors to come together thoroughly. Taste the noodles so they don't overcook and get mushy. During Lent, many folks cook halouski without meat, but as a variation, you can pre-cook some kielbasa on bacon and add it to the mix with the noodles. But please, if you're using fresh kielbasa, make sure it's pre-cooked all the way through. Here's another variation we like. After the noodles, cabbage, and all the flavors have cooked for about five minutes, transfer everything to a casserole dish and finish in the oven at 350 degrees Fahrenheit for about 10 more minutes or until the top just begins to brown and crisp. A few minutes under the broiler may help to crisp up the top quicker. This is one of those dishes where the proportions of cabbage to noodles to kielbasa are totally up to you. The flavors come from the spices and the marriage of the ingredients, so more or less of the other will just reflect your personal taste. The full recipe for this dish and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the post on October 30th, 2017. Wow, Halushki, I do know what, while you were uh, talking about them, I just actually looked them up, and, and I found also something that's called Halushki, Halushki, same no, thing. Halushki. Same thing. Yeah, I know, but that's based, potato-based, imagine that. Yeah, there's one. You grate yeah. potatoes, uh, raw potatoes, and then this is based on that. Because I was thinking about the word zacierki. Are you aware of zacierki? No, <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, in my past, in my early, like, childhood days, my mother would make zacierki na mleku. So this this is a kind of kluski. So that's just like dumplings and dough? It's kluski, like, you know, the word kluski, right? Which is a general word. It's a generic Polish name for all kinds of, you know, dumplings and without, usually without a filling, right? So, so, but that's not the same as your halushki. I've never heard it, ever. Well, I I suspect that it's from uh, the villages somewhere. Mm -hmm. It must be, Where the farmers were just making use of leftover food. Right. You know, especially around Lent, which they were trying to, you know, empty the, the larders. That's right. And, um, and when we go to 
heritage church festivals around Buffalo or Albany, New York, um, the, the churches always serve Haluski. And most of the time, they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that they're, sounds... They're so overcooked. Right. The noodles right. are mush. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's just... It's a terrible, but we've made it at home, and it's. I love it. I, I like good. like the way you 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 describe them. But it is true that the, there's Hungarian haluski, yep. there is Slovak, Slovak, yeah, right? Yeah. So yep. that clearly must be something that a lot of people claim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure, why not? Why well, not? anyway, I love your recipe. Thank you so much. In the past episodes of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. And it is our great pleasure to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. You probably remember Bart Soroczyński, whom we featured in episode 10. A Polish-Canadian actor and circus artist now living in London and working, among others, for the world-famous Royal Shakespeare Company at Stratford, the English National Opera in London and Switzerland's National Theatres. Here is the big news. Bart will appear in the upcoming fantasy film, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, based on the screenplay written by J.K. Rowling herself, with such stars as Jude Law and Johnny Depp. The film, produced by Warner Brothers, will premiere in Paris and will be released worldwide in November. Congratulations, Bart! You've been listening to the 58th episode of Polkast. Polkast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia, links, please visit our website at mypolkast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. Please remember about our crowdfunding campaign. Like all other podcasts, we do count and depend on our listeners. As we said before, what is free for you to listen to, it's not free for us to make. So, please support podcast. Go to mypodcast.com slash support and make a pledge. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. And we leave you with Polones from the movie by Andrzej Wajda, the movie Pan Tadeusz. An incredible hit, 1999. And I want to tell you, since we had talked a lot about film today, that us, Phoenix Polish Film Promotions, organized, I don't know if it was the biggest, but one of the biggest premieres of this film in downtown Toronto at the Hummingbird Center for the Performing Arts. In 1999. It was quite an amazing event. It truly was. And you were there. Yes, I was. Thank you for the invite. 
Lots and lots of people were there. Over 3,000 people were there. Okay, let's listen to this beautiful, beautiful Polonaise. Thank you for listening to Polkast.